Welcome to this episode of Season 4 of The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has reached over 3.5 million listeners, viewers, and readers around the world. The Common Bridge is available on the Substack website and the Substack app. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can find the program on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. The Common Bridge draws guests and audiences from across the political spectrum, and we invite you to become a free or paid subscriber on your favorite medium. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. We've got Ryan Busey back with us today. He, of course, is the author of Gunfight, a definitive chronicle of the gun industry, how the NRA rose to power, and as a man who, frankly, has devoted his adult life to putting safe and excellent firearms into the right people's hands. Today, we're going to talk about some of the policies that might interrupt the gun carnage. And why don't we just start off with the assault weapons ban being proposed by the president and members of his party. And let's just dive right into it. Is the assault weapons ban the answer to gun violence in America? Certainly not. Um, Let me start by, so, you know, there's the hammer, but a lot of my friends are proponents of an assault weapons ban. Um, And I appreciate, I do appreciate the, I I think, at least in my opinion, they're very sincere. They mean to do well. Um, I think of my friends like David Hogg and, um, you know, Fred Gutenberg and like so many, I get why they want it. But if I could hear, having been inside the industry, I'd like to step back for just a second. And let's start with the 1994 to 2004, the 10 years, September 13th, 1994 to September 13th, 2004, the United States had what was referred to as an assault weapons ban. And I need to sort of dispel a few myths. First off, you could buy as many AR-15s as you wanted to during the air quotes here, assault weapons ban. What the assault weapons ban did then was outlaw AR-15s with some additional features on them. If I showed you or any of your listeners from 10 feet away a gun that was legal during the assault weapons ban and then showed you a gun that was legal after the assault weapons ban, I would be kind of shocked if any of them could tell me the difference between the two. In other words, that ban, that features-based ban, did not do, it. honestly, it really didn't do much with regards to banning anything back then. Now, importantly, it did codify a social norm about kind of what was cool and what wasn't cool, and it wasn't cool to go marching around towns with AR-15 strapped to your chest and march into the Michigan Capitol and scream at lawmakers with 30-round magazines. That was not cool. Um, And after the ban was um, not renewed by George Bush, I feel like we've had a lot more of that armed intimidation being accepted in in our country. So it did codify social norms, but it wasn't a very effective, um, it wasn't a very effective legal um, ban or prohibited, I don't think. And so now I don't spend time really talking about or supporting the assault weapons ban um, because I think it sort of takes the air out of the room for so many other things that can get done and that do have bipartisan support and that don't kind of 
progress the boogeyman of people want to take away all your guns, which again is a complete, just a fallacy. It, that's when the right says that that's just flat stupid. Um, I think of things like, uh, as we talked about on our last episode, right? Universal background checks polls at 85% for something to pull at 85%. Do you know how many Republicans have to support it? Pretty much. I'm, everybody. I'm sorry, but the technical term, the, the technical term is a shitload. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of Republicans support that. Um, raising the minimum age on semi-automatic to purchase semi-automatic rifles from 18 to 21, which is a strange holdup. The fact that we don't have that as a holdover from the time when almost all guns that were sold were, so- were sold for hunting purposes. So that pulls in the high 70s, sometimes over 80. Again, for that to happen, a ton of Republicans have to support it. Um, so basic common sense things that aren't about taking anybody's gun rights away, but that will help in the situation. Those things have lots of support. I think, and they're attainable. They're doable. Um, why don't we focus on that stuff? That I guess that's that's where I'm at. Well, I agree with you that I have no problem if you have a safe full of AR-15s, you're never going to hurt me or anybody else with them. There's people that might live a stone's throw for me. I don't want them having a 22 with six shot capacity loaded with snake shot because they're going to find a way to do something bad with it. And as I've examined this problem, it always is the bad person or the person that shouldn't have the firearm coming together with the firearm that creates disaster. And I know people will cite the Second Amendment incorrectly about the restriction on arms not to be abridged, but they forget the first part about well-regulated. Now, again, I'm not a constitutional lawyer at all, not any kind of a lawyer, but in terms of applying common sense, I kind of look at it like this. In this country today, if you're 16 years old and you get your first driver's license, you're not allowed to jump into the cab of a semi-truck and take off down the road because you're going to hurt people if you do that. In fact, in a lot of states, we have graduated licensing that the young person gets to drive only in the daytime in good weather. Then progressively, as they gain more experience, they're given more rights to drive. If you are an airplane pilot and you get your first license that allows you to fly a single engine airplane in good visibility conditions, in good weather. You don't get to get that first license and jump into the seat of a 777 because you would kill and you would hurt people. When you look over at medical care, somebody coming out of medical school does not get to be the lead surgeon on a brain surgery. You're 10 years into practice before you're the lead, you get progressively more responsibility. Yet, In this country, in many states until recent legislation, an 18-year-old could walk into a gun store and legally buy the most powerful weapon, let's just call it a semi-automatic rifle, and as much ammunition as they wanted with the proviso that they passed the simple nine-question background check, which one of the nine questions is, are you a fugitive from justice? Interesting if anybody's ever checked the yes box on that. They probably have, and they probably corrected it, but yeah. Yeah. So when I think about policies that, when back-tested, would have stopped Parkland, would have stopped Boulder, would have stopped Buffalo, would have stopped Uvalde, the only one that I know of is something I call graduated licensing. And it works like this. For your first gun purchase, you get some training, you get some range time with an instructor, 
And you can then have a revolver with a limited capacity, perhaps hunting rifle with limited capacity. And over time, just like airplanes, if you show that you're a safe operator in a period of months, might be six months, might be 12, more training, more examination by an instructor. Maybe you can now move up to a semi-automatic pistol, maybe a little bit larger rifle. And you want to go to the next level? more training, more certification, at some point a mental health check before you get that next most powerful weapon. And the reason I think this passes constitutional muster is this. Nobody's being restricted about owning a firearm, period. But we also have some sensible regulations about who gets to do that. What I'd like to hear from you is where are the holes in this logic And what could the role of the NRA be? To me, it's like, oh, that's pretty easy. Let's become the advocate for safe gun usage and storage. And what could you do if you were a gun shop? How about offering classes and certification? It seems like it's an economic opportunity, too. But, Ryan, you're the expert on this. Let me stop. Could this work? Well, could it work today? The simple answer is no, not today, just because the 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 NRA and now several radicalized groups have the situation so volatile and on fire that rational thought is, you know. Setting aside the political powers, if fewer firearms are today and you said you could hit the gavel and put that in place, let's just imagine it was in place. Well, there are parts of that that have long been supported by the NRA and by the firearms industry. There, I often... This is a total digression, but um, I think about this sort of um, genius. It's hard for me to say this, but the, the sort of genius in the MAGA phrase, make America great again. It's that last word that is is this sort of genius in that because that tells people that they can go back to something they already experienced and already accepted. And so if I'm going to steal a little bit of that as much as I detest that phrase and detest what it means. I'm going to steal a little bit of that and go to the again part. And the firearms industry, like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to delve into the particulars of your proposal, you know, this capacity. Do we have a revolver now? Do I I get the general gist of it? Um, And I just want to say it's not crazy because the industry for a long time accepted and promoted and advertised and, uh, you know, funded large parts of that. Um, when concealed carry became um, ubiquitous across the country, everybody who I knew in the industry was like, yeah, okay, concealed carry is good, but like we ought to have firearms classes and permitting when they get a concealed carry license. Exactly. There's no infringement mm-hmm. there. Like to make sure that uh, people will say when you use cars as a um, – as a comparison, which I often do, people are like, yeah, well, you don't have a right to own a car. I'm like, okay, okay, I got it. There's no Second Amendment for cars. But the the ability to use and drive cars, I think most people would say, is kind of right now wrapped up in our general purpose for the Constitution and government, the, the pursuit of a life, liberty, and, and happiness, right? You need to be able to get from point A to point B to get to your place of work, to maybe drive to an airport for vacation. So in, you don't have a specific right for that car, but that car is part of your life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So you do, it is sort of a right. And you think about, would we think it would be a good idea to throw a bunch of uh, 17 and 18 year olds in Formula One race cars without licensing and throw them out on the street <laughs> with no stop signs? 
I, I think that would end a freaking disaster. Um, and yet we are kind of doing that with guns. We're throwing 18 year olds out with no training. Um, and an AR 15 isn't, isn't powerful. Like the cartridge of the AR 15 isn't powerful. In fact, it's a very small cartridge, but the system of the AR 15 built to deliver rounds down range very quickly and efficiently, um, with almost no recoil, um, stay on target is very much like a formula one race car. A great big truck is more powerful than a formula one race car. But if you got to get from point A to point B in town and corner and accelerate to 105 mile an hour in, um, you know, 300 yards and uh, a formula one race car, yeah, that's your tool of choice. Very similar to an AR 15. And we don't put <laughs> unlicensed kids by the dozens in towns with $150,000 uh, uh, Formula One race cars and think it's going to end well. So the NRA has has supported testing. They have supported training. They have supported all this stuff. And yet now they're telling us we should just um, do away with that because those are somehow infringements. I say, are you, are you kidding me? Yeah. No, no, no freedom is unfettered it, because people who are impacted by that freedom must also be protected. And as we talked about in our last episode, nothing has the potential to impact the freedom and rights of others like the freedom to own a gun. That's why we must treat it like the serious thing that it is. Yeah, and in your book, you actually make the parallel with machine guns, that it is legal to own a machine gun in the United States with the proviso that you've demonstrated that you know how to handle it. I am ignorant on what those requirements are, but I'm just kind of taking that concept and running it back to that first firearm. And, you know, there would probably be a way to grandfather people in. And when I think about, well, would this stop everything because there's so many guns in circulation? Well, no, but it would slow down the ease of that new gun owner getting a hold of something they can't handle akin to your parallel with that formula one race car. Yeah. So people should understand terminology is important because if we're talking about regulating stuff, we should all, and I tried to do this in my book. I think, I think you note this rich that like part of my book is an education for folks about terms and terminologies and technicalities without it being preachy or some boring book, but I, I wanted to educate folks. And so semi-automatic means you pull the trigger once the gun goes bang once fully automatic is you hold the trigger down and it keeps going like that zipper spray sound like you hear in movies um, that that that's a fully automatic gun surprise here um, fully automatic guns were regulated by the 1934 national firearms act it's called the NFA national firearms act. And so it's people think it's not legal to own fully automatic guns. Not true. It's totally legal to own fully automatic guns and has been even since they were heavily regulated by the NFA yet since 1934. And so your neighbor might own a fully automatic gun. I mean, Rich says he doesn't, but for all I know, maybe he does own one. I don't know. Um, he could legally, he could. Um, but do you know how many uh, mass shootings have been propagated with fully automatic guns since 1934 when they were heavily regulated? Big fat zero, not one, even though they are, um, thought to be the most effective weapons of war, right? Why is that? That's because there is a very stringent national background check 
it takes a long time, like it's several months to get the background check uh, through and you have to buy a federal tax stamp, which is kind of an arcane thing, a couple hundred bucks. Um, and then you can own one of these fully auto guns. And so here's a, here's a perfect example of how you can have an exceptionally huge amount of freedom, the freedom to own a fully automatic gun. And if you just exercise the amount, the proper amount of responsibility, we can limit the bad outcomes. We've done it with fully auto guns and continue to do it. I'm with you 100% on that. The other thing that you see coming through in the legislation is a couple things. One, requirements for storage. It has to be in a safe. And then we're going to lift the restrictions on the liability of gun manufacturers. The argument that I have to have my firearm in my nightstand or horrors underneath my mattress, I think is nonsense, given that today there's so many fingertip safes that you can undo sight unseen. They're not as secure as locking it away in a safe, but they are secure from children to a degree. And then this notion that we could make gun manufacturers liable for the misuse of the guns. Are any of the storage requirements or the product liability that you hear being propagated, are are any of these good public policies? Well, let's start with the storage thing. And I'm so we talked about in our first episode, the degree to which fear is an effective motivator for humans. And it's true. It's like it got us through a few hundred thousand years of evolution, right? right. Um, some big predator marching through the savanna, um, you get fearful very quick and your body has a fight or flight response and you like snap into action. So it's like, it's down deep in our DNA. It's, it's very effective and it and it can come at the, to the service very quick. And, and fear can also be used as an effective political motivator as we've seen. And so it's hard to get away from that. I'm going to step. And so when people say I have to have my bed, my gun on my nightstand or stuck under my mattress, I'm not even going to go to that. It's it's their responsibility or their place to understand how fearful they are. I don't know. I don't live in their house. Maybe there's a gang of criminals banging on your door every five minutes and you really do need it. I'm not going to judge you. What I am going to judge is it's time to understand that you have a responsibility to store that thing and keep it away from kids or anybody else. I Again, your business about protecting yourself, your business, totally your business. But God damn it, somebody has to be responsible for the kids and the innocents. What about their rights? And so I think safe storage laws are important or liabilities are important. If, if Again, your business, if you need to protect yourself, but if you buy a gun and a kid gets a hold of it or your kid like this Oxford, Michigan kid, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, as you guys know, they're close. Um, the parents basically bought him the gun or allowed him to take their gun. And like you are going to be held liable. And I think you should be sued until the cows come home because somebody has to stand up for the innocence rights, too. And so, again, if that if that family thought they needed that gun for safety, fine, their business. I'm I'm all for self-defense. We have to do something to help to hold the gun owners legally responsible for what happens if you're not responsible with the gun. Indeed. In Oxford, Michigan, the parents violated the first law about straw purchases because you have to say on your federal firearms, nine questions, are you buying this for yourself or someone else? They falsified that, bought this firearm for this emotionally distraught kid and put it in his hands. And it's a tragic case that this little boy was in emotional need and the parents just abandoned the kid. His 
grandparent died, his best friend moved away, his pet died. They, I mean, it's one thing after another, zero emotional support. And no one thought to look in his backpack when he was drawing pictures of blood and people being shot. If I ever had David Hogg on my show, I don't know, have any idea how I could get him. But one of the questions I'd want to ask him, when you found out who the shooter was, was it a surprise? I'm in agreement that the individual needs to be responsible for that care of that firearm. But what about the manufacturer? Well, so I, having been in a manufacturer and having lived through these liability um, wars, as I detail and I participated in some of them, as I note in the book, um, do I think that manufacturers of any product in general should be held generally liable for irresponsible or illegal actions of somebody using their product? No, I don't. That That seems to make sense. But if you knowingly market, if you encourage those behaviors, right, 15 years ago, we didn't have any guns or marketing campaigns like we do now. We have a gun now that's heavily marketed. You can go look up the website today if you don't believe it. It's called the Urban Super Sniper. Like, what the hell are you supposed to do with an Urban Super Sniper? It's marketed to take it downtown. We have a company called Rooftop Arms after do you remember July 4th last year? Kid in, in Illinois jumps up on a rooftop and starts shooting people at, at the Highland Park 4th yes. of July. We have a we have a AR-15 company called Rooftop Arms. Okay. Something we've crossed a Rubicon. Like, do I think that, that firearms companies should be held generally liable for illegal actions? No. Do I think they should be held liable if they have marketing campaigns that encourage them? Hell yes, I do. Um, because they are not they are no longer responsible when if they're doing those sorts of things i think that's a great distinction right there because today president biden says we need to have liability for the manufacturer and i was trying to apply legal constructs to that so if i buy a car and it has a safety defect and i hurt myself or someone else then i have the ability to go sue that manufacturer because they're not supposed to sell me a car that breaks but i'm thinking if i had a firearm how could I sue the manufacturer if it killed somebody because it's designed? I guess I could only sue them if it didn't kill somebody. But I like the way you put that if if they're marketing it, but that's horrible. And as I said in the earlier episode, that pop-up ads in first-person shooters for the stereotypical overweight kid playing video games in their basement, going into that couch commando, and then saying, I'm 18 years old. I can go buy that weapon. To me, it's horrible. I want to say, too, I think that none of what I'm stating, I think, is anti-Second Amendment or anti-gun. In fact, I think it's pro-Second Amendment and pro-gun to be stating these things. Why? Because responsible people will do what it takes to maintain the rights so that all other people in our country can maintain their rights, too. It's not patriotic. It's not responsible to think that one right can usurp all others. Like, oh, the Second Amendment right is so important that if I have it and lots of people get killed and lose their rights, that doesn't matter. That's not patriotic. That, in fact, eventually, that's going to cost everybody all their rights. If these people now who espouse this idea that you must own guns for this weird this weird idea of some civil war, armed civil war, if they get their way, do, do, do you want a, a quick guess about how many constitutional rights will matter? Yeah, I can tell you, zero. So the responsible thing is to do what it takes to maintain our fragile system now before it gets to that point. Ryan, let me respond to that. All right, I 
had a conversation with someone that was adamantly pro-gun about you know the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. I said, well, why do you need that? Well, you know, if we have to face tyranny, because that was the intent of the framers and the founders, that they didn't just get back from a hunting trip and they were afraid that 200 years in the future, they weren't going to be able to use a gun to go hunt deer. They said, this is a bulwark against tyranny. So I posed the question, how long do you think you would last against a professional army? Okay, you can get, you know, the best over-the-counter semi-automatic rifle you can get against someone 40 years younger than you, superbly trained, with better scopes, night vision, et cetera. How many seconds do you think you'd survive against that? And I never did get an answer. But I asked that question to some contacts I have within various security agencies of the country, and this is the answer I got. It's kind of a dilemma. He said, yes, he said, but in the event that something like that happened, that the authorities would have to turn out in force if people possess these rifles. That left me kind of in a quandary, which way do you turn here? And that led me back to this graduated licensing. I don't care if you've got a stash of AR-15s in your house. Just keep them in there. Well, that's, I guess, in my, and I think we talked about this earlier. It's obviously true that there are millions slash tens of millions of people in the United States who own firearms and do so responsibly because as, as horrific as some of our firearms violence numbers are, they're not tens of millions of occurrences. So lots of people are owning guns and doing so responsibly or at least responsibly enough that nothing bad happens with their guns. They may in the privacy of their own home, they may do crazy things that I disagree with their guns, but they ain't doing it in a way that costs other people their rights. So it is in those people's interest to stop the bad things from happening so their rights are maintained. That's I, I don't, I, and it wasn't very long ago that the industry, the NRA, and everybody else agreed with this. We want to do what we can to keep the bad folks from bad occurrences happening with guns. And instead, we're many people are now espousing that we do things which are obviously going to increase those occurrences. I don't like, that's not conservative. That's not patriotic. That's not pro-gun. It's, it's, it's crazy. Look, I think you speak a lot of common sense and I'm in strong agreement with you that there has to be reasonable regulations and we regulate everything else. And with something as powerful as a firearm, we do need to regulate it. When I walk outside my house today. I don't really think that an airplane is going to fall out of the sky and land on top of me because of the regulations by the wait for it Federal Aviation Administration, federal, our United States government, making sure that the aircraft and the person flying it know what they're doing and it's been maintained properly. Yet we have school children literally going to school and wondering, are they going to be able to walk out of class? That is an insane position for us to be in. It's just astonishing to me that the NRA wouldn't take the posture of, look, we have a responsibility to the greater society by talking about responsible ownership of firearms, not letting people that shouldn't have them get access to them. In some cases, removing firearms from somebody who's lost the capacity to operate the firearm. During the course of having the common bridge, I have a lot of contacts in the healthcare industry. 
They got an elderly man. He has dementia. He took his firearms. They put them away. He was able to go out and buy another one like in a day. And he's literally not there mentally. Espousing that system, I want to know, who does that advantage come on? Um, that no good is going to come of that. And and so it and it really it was not very long ago that the industry itself, including the NRA, would have said, absolutely, we need to make sure that never happens. And now we're so far down the radicalized political path that, you know, it, you, you can't say anything bad about your tribe. So nobody nobody on the NRA or, or firearms uh, side, you know, wants to say anything about that as evidence just on the other side of the age spectrum, we had Kyle Rittenhouse just, you know, a year and a half, two years ago, um, take an AR-15, a Smith & Wesson M&P, military and police, M&P means military and police 15, took that rifle into a very dangerous situation in Kenosha, Wisconsin, killed people with it. Do you know how many times the firearms industry or the NRA or any anything associated with the gun industry has criticized that? Exactly zero. Not once. And, and, and I'm not talking about legality. I'm talking about, I realize the kid was found uh, not guilty. I, I understand that. I understand the legality of it. I'm not, I'm not picking with the jury, but it was an immoral, stupid thing to do. Um, and the industry ought to be saying that. Well, uh, just a quick note on the Rittenhouse thing, which I did follow carefully. And I did talk to people very close to this on background or that were said to be knowledgeable. So first of all, Rittenhouse worked in Kenosha. He had a job there at the municipal pool as a lifeguard. People didn't know that. He did not transport the firearm over state lines. It was always in Wisconsin. He was invited to guard the place of business of a car dealership that had been subject to arson the two nights prior. So invited to be there. And at the time of the confrontation with the first shot, it was preventing a dumpster that was on fire from being rolled onto gas pumps, which could have caused untold numbers of deaths. And the first person that came at him was someone that had threatened his life earlier. All right. These are all things that came out during trial. And here's how we got into the situation. I asked a a friend of mine, lawyer, well-known, leans left, said, you know, Rittenhouse should go to prison for life. I said, okay, in our town, if the town is being burned and the police are standing down, would you want a guy like Kyle Rittenhouse there? Well, of course, no. All right. If they come to the corner store and now they're burning down the corner store, would you want a guy like Rittenhouse? The police are saying, we're not responding, which is what happened in Kenosha. Okay, no. I said, okay, now they come to your next door neighbor's house. Same thing, setting it on fire, police saying we're not responding. Do you want a guy like Kyle Rittenhouse there? Or Finally, they're, they're in your yard. So that's the kind of dilemma we get into. If had the Kenosha Police Department and the National Guard and whatever contained the situation, we wouldn't need individual vigilantes. You never would have heard of the kid. That's the kind of thing that gets misreported, that it was a, a kid that had no business in Wisconsin that crossed the state line with the firearm that wantonly shot three people. In fact, if you look at the New York Times, ran a great piece on this where they strung together all of the cameras and the timing. It's a tragic situation, but it was pretty clear why he was acquitted. All those things, you know, uh, are, are pieces of them certainly are true. Maybe all of them are true. And yet um, there hasn't been a firearms instructor of note in the last 50 years who ever 
once has said, look for a dangerous situation and take a loaded AR-15 and go down there. Not once. And so what the kid did was stupid and deeply irresponsible. He was invited in. The owners of the business said, hey, you know, the police aren't doing anything. You guys sit here. So, I mean, you can argue, should he have done that? And I guess what would the other case been that the city continues to burn? Maybe that would have been okay. Maybe it would have been okay if the dumpster set those gas pumps on fire. All right. Maybe nobody else would have been hurt. We don't know, but there was an intervention. I don't think Rittenhouse is a great example about firearms, particularly, you know, if you want to get, you know, you know more about this than I do about, you know, trigger discipline and the like. I think he was acquitted justifiably, but his life is basically over. He's always going to be this caricature and the untruths that were talked about throughout the media system are out there. They're going to keep getting repeated. So, Ryan, when we look at how to keep firearms out of hands of the people that shouldn't have them, what are the best tools we can use today? Millions of guns in the country. We should have millions of events every day. It's relatively few. It's far too many. One's too many. How do we keep those firearms away from people that shouldn't have them? Well, background checks work. And so for those... um, for the, those folks who are attacking background checks now, which there are, um, you're going to see lawsuits after the Bruin case, um, the Supreme Court case. You're going to see lawsuits coming that will at, that will try to attack or roll back the idea of federal background checks on firearms purchases. Um, I think that's foolish. Background checks work. They stop lots of bad folks from buying guns every year, and we need to strengthen that system, not weaken it. Um Will it stop all of them? No. Does it make everything perfect? No. Um, I mean, I care about that, but I don't care. I care about making things better where we can, not trying to make them perfect, because I know we'll never make them perfect. The the, the second thing that works, red flag slash ERPO laws that, um, as imperfect as they can be, will help stop you know, the Nicholas Cruz thing in Parkland, Florida. If we had a better red flag system, could that have stopped that and others? Yes, because there are people and professionals and teachers and, um, you know, colleagues that people work with that recognize when there are, as we call them, red flags. They're called red flags for a reason. Um, And will those help? Yes. And some of the, there is funding in last year's Senate bill to help strengthen those around the country. And I hope all states utilize that funding and um, strengthen those laws because it, you know, might be your kid's school that it, it, we, we stop and identify a shooter or your workplace or your wife's or your husband's or whatever, you know, I mean, um, so these things impact all of us. And I guess the last thing I'll say is those two are examples of things that make things marginally better, but don't make anything perfect. And um, we need to stop thinking, you know, if, I've heard a lot of um, I've heard a lot of speeches and a lot of talking. I've read a lot of articles about air quotes here. Um, how do we fix the gun thing, or what's this? What's the solution to gun violence? And there really isn't one. There are lots of small things that we can do to make it marginally better, and that's that's those are the those are the things we got to do. A great book about the uh, Parkland shooter is written by a fellow. His name's Pollard or Pollock, called "Why Meadow Died." And his daughter was killed in that Parkland shooting. And the shooter was a troubled kid from the get-go. And if a red flag law would have stopped that, we sure needed to know about that. Obviously, he never should have had that firearm in his hands at all. I'm an eternal optimist, and I'm hopeful that 
we're on a path where we're going to get in front of this. A lot of people on the right, though, are going to come back and say this. They're going to say, look, Chicago, look at how many people got shot in Chicago last night. You know, it's a most heavily regulated space. They leave out the fact that mostly it is semi-automatic handguns that are causing the carnage there. That's true. Is there a solution from the gun side of that equation to bring down the violence that we have in segments of the population like young men who are, might be more prone to anger and might be more prone to using a firearm? Is there an industry solution to this or is it something else we have to contend with? Well, there's not, there's not a solution. Um, some of the largest gun stores, some of the largest volume gun stores in the country are in in the border regions of Illinois and Indiana, and they're in Indiana. Why is that? Gun manufacturers know that. Um, it's not It's not because all of those guns are being sold and consumed in Indiana, okay? Um, in other words, this is why federal laws are important, because what happens, the, the law of your region is really only as strong as as the law in the next region over if these things can be transported across borders. And that's always happened in the country and will always continue to happen. But together, um, responsible actors in the firearms industry and responsible regulators could work to identify and lessen some of this. Will it make it all go away? And, and look, so much of what happens in Chicago are really indicators of much larger societal systemic problems of um, institutional inequities and educational problems and um, a, a wealth gap in our country that creates a lot of angst and it comes out in firearms violence in a, in a place like Chicago. So, you know, these are in, it just happens to be the tip of the spear firearms violence does. And so there's lots of things that we can work on that will lessen firearms violence that don't really even have anything to do with firearms <laughs> because, you know, if we make those, if we make the lives of those people better in Chicago, you'll have less firearms violence, trust me. But there are policies that we can enact that will lessen distribution and sales policies that would lessen the flow of mostly inexpensive, high capacity firearms into Chicago. It's people aren't going to like it, but, but, but it could happen. Yeah. And some of those urban things, and I've had guests on my show that talk about the impact fatherlessness and the correlation between young men in particular that are prone to violence and not having a father and trying to help this segment of the population diffuse situations other than escalating violence. And my concern is that when there's so many guns out there in a escalating situation, somebody's going to, in fear, go for theirs first. And I can tell you, I grew up in a blue collar area and I worked with a lot of people in factories and such. And a lot of folks carried, this was way before, you know, it was legal to, to carry. And I was very young. I was a teenager then. And I remember listening to their conversations. It was a weird psychology because they were always talking about what they were going to do under certain situation. And it all led to justifying having the gun in their hands. At a time yeah. when, you know, you were expected as a man to be able to fight with your fists, if you, you know, you that you didn't need a weapon. Yet they had all these scenarios that that's when they were going to pull their gun, including like the landlord came to collect rent and things like that. And I, and I look at it sometimes as just a, a sign of weakness in that era 
because there just weren't that many guns out there. We're talking about the early 1970s. But today, you know, I could see a 16 or 17 year old saying, yeah, everybody's got one. Maybe I need one, too. I mean, it's. Well, and if I'm that if I'm that 16 or 17 year old kid who who feels threatened or trying to protect my little brother, my little sister or whatever, um, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. It's not. And it, I'm, I'm not I'm not not supporting that kid's right to defend himself. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is this is a choice we made. Is that the country we want to live in? Um, it, it's not a legal thing. It's not a constitutional thing. Like this is a societal thing where we have chosen to put these kids in this kind of situation where they think or where they need a gun to fix things. I'm like, okay, that that's a choice we've made. Right. As we kind of move to the wrap up here. And again, I've never spoken to anyone that has had the knowledge and experience that you have. And I'm deeply grateful that you've given me this time to discuss this issue with you. If you were called by the president of the United States, no matter who it was, and they said, Ryan, we would like you to come personally report to me and tell me what we need to do about gun policy in the United States, leaving aside the politics about what's possible and not, if you could design it, how would you advise the president of the United States? I would say, first off, we need to defuse the sort of irrational vitriol that is around this situation. And let's start um, by celebrating responsible gun owners and understand, understanding that firearms and gun owners and the culture around that can be healthy, can be safe, can be responsible. It doesn't all have to be bad. And you have to, you have to do that instead of demonizing. Many on the left do demonize or, or really don't understand any sort of facet of firearms ownership in the United States. We've got to start with that. I don't know exactly what policy that is, but I think coming from the top and saying, you know, and, and which I try to do in the beginning of my book, try to explain to people why this isn't all bad. It doesn't have to be bad. It's not all scary. Um, start with that. And then, um, and then let's start with the policies that some of them we discussed here on your segment today. Like there's lots of stuff that pulls 75, 85%, which means I don't even, as a president, I don't even have to do any work to bring people together. They're already together. That the 80% of people like universal background checks. Okay. The vast majority of people think that the uh, minimum age for semi-automatic rifles should be raised, right? So I could go through several of these instances and would any of those things, air quotes, fix it? No. But we could take the air out of this national chasm and we could make things marginally better instead of having them progressively get marginally worse. And I'm worried if we don't do something like that, we're going to quickly end up at a place where, we're, where there ain't going to be any coming back from. Like January 6th, that happens with a bunch of loaded AR-15s and, you know, 500 people get killed in an event like that. Like that's something the nation might not come back from. Um, so, so let's ratchet it back. You know what I love about your response to that? You began with a conciliatory approach. Let's all talk about the problem. And you didn't go on the attack of one side to the other. And that, in my humble estimation, is what's exactly putting our constitutional republic form of democracy at risk, is that the game has become Republicans attack Democrats, Democrats attack Republicans, 
news media keeps us split apart because their business models around clicks and eyeballs and if they can keep you focused because you can't take your eye off a threat. But my experience sounds like yours. The country's full of compassionate and generous people and that we have the tools to solve the problem if we act better. And I hope that President Biden and whomever the president might be would call you and say, Ryan, come take a seat next to me and guide me in how to bring down this risk to the republic of unfettered gun ownership. I think you'd be very valuable. And I, I again, want to compliment you on your bravery. Uh, I know that word gets thrown around a lot, but folks should read your book, Gunfight. It was not without great personal cost to you. And I, I think the, the clarity that you've given us potentially is a, a leaping off point to a better day tomorrow. Well, thanks. I appreciate you having me on and I appreciate the kind words about the book. So. Great. Any closing remarks for our audience? No, I would just I would just say I think that this issue is important because I think it now colors everything that you care about. Like I'm, I'm a very passionate environmental advocate and I know lots of people are, I'm worried about women's reproductive rights. And I could go on and on and on about all these things that people are worried about. I don't think any of them are going to get measurably better until we figure out a way to improve this gun thing, because I think the gun thing is kind of at the center of our national political chasm. And so you may think, oh, well, the gun thing's too hard or it's, it's you know, it's too emotional or I don't understand it. Um, I'm just going to keep doing this thing over here. Yeah, well, I got news for you. Until, until we can, this most powerful of freedoms, until we figure out a way to balance that with the responsibilities a little bit better, I don't think any of our political stuff is going to get measurably better. So it's important that I, I guess I'm I'm telling you that I, the listeners that I think this this thing is important to everybody, whether you you like it or it's t- intimidating or not. It's something we should all care about. I could not agree more that even you know these most divisive issues, abortion, firearms, that there's a great middle that are in general agreement. Yet we have a system that continues to pit us against each other. But perhaps through this little program and through the books that you're writing, that maybe we can make a little bit of a dent. Again, Ryan, you've been really generous with your time. I hope that my listeners, readers, and viewers will take the time to look up the book Gunfight. It is a great read. Buy it for Christmas presents. Buy it for Hanukkah presents. Buy it for birthday presents. But let's get this dialogue pointed in a better direction, and let's celebrate men like Ryan Boosie that are taking on the fight. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. And this is your host, Rich Helpy, signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Subscribe to The Common Bridge on Substack.com or use their Substack app where you can find more interviews, columns, videos, and nonpartisan discussions of the day. Just search for The Common Bridge. You can also find The Common Bridge on Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app.